Amen. You may be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn with me this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We will be continuing our uh, look at uh, this very important book for the church in a series entitled Enduring in Light of Jesus' Return. And if you were with us last week, um, you heard the introduction given by Paul, Timothy, and Silas. This book was co-written by those three authors. Um, I will often refer to it simply as Paul, but know that it was a collaborative work, not only in the writing of this book, but in the ministry to this church. Uh, Paul, um, along with Silas, and then Timothy himself was sent to the church to minister to them in a time when when, uh, Paul could not get there. So all three have a, a strong tie to this church, a strong bond with this church, and a strong desire to see it grow and to see it endure. This is taking place almost one year after the writing, um, somewhere between eight months and a year, of 1 Thessalonians. And so a little bit of time has passed, and what the writers found is the persecution had not ceased, that it had continued. In fact, the persecution had grown over the course of that year. And we saw a different introduction Um, You know, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul spends a lot of time hoping that their faith is proven, hoping that they will last, hoping that they will make it. And if you were with us last week, you heard in 2 Thessalonians, their faith is confirmed. Their faith is proven. It has been tested. They are enduring. And we're going to continue in that thought this week. And we're going to see it almost from the other side, if you will. Last week, we focused on how the church is doing with the persecution. Well, this week, we're going to see how God is doing or dealing with the persecution. It is not something that God simply overlooks. It is not something that is only to benefit the church. You know, negatively, we often talk about persecution and how good it is for the Christian and how it purifies us and how it benefits us, which are truths. But that doesn't do away with the fact that persecution is wrong, that it is bad, that it wasn't God's plan. Well, it was God's plan, but it wasn't supposed to be this way. And so this morning, we are really going to be talking about judgment, judgment for those who reject God and reject the church. And before we say more, let's go into our text and actually hear it for ourselves. I invite you to look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, I'm going to actually begin in verse 5, and I'll read through verse 12. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might 
When he comes on that day to be glorified in all the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever and will accomplish every purpose he has set out for it. Let us go to him now in a time of prayer. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. We who are sinners come before you, recognizing our need of a Savior, realizing our need for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, standing before a difficult passage of judgment, we ask for your help, we ask for your love, we ask for your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts that we may heed these warnings well. We ask for the ability to have compassion upon those who do not yet trust in you. Give us boldness in our speech and in our ability to share this word with others. And may we seek to do all of that because we ourselves have received it from you. We love you, Lord, and we dedicate this time to you now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. One of his many books on parenting children, Paul Tripp explains that parents often run into a couple of errors when it comes to correcting their children. Actually, he goes through many errors. Each book has no less than a dozen, um, and I would encourage you um, to get all of them uh, and to read them. Uh, But there's two big errors that we face as parents when it comes to raising our children, and particularly in the field of correction. One of those potential errors is empty promises. Uh, It is usually a a threat um, of high degree. You know, this is the, you will never watch television again. Only to one hour, one day, two days later, have the TV back on because it was serving its intended purpose at keeping them complacent. Um, What this does, though, and and Tripp rightly uh, states this in his book, it teaches our children that eventually we will cave in and that we're not to be trusted, uh, that we will bend to their will given enough time and pressure. But then there's the other side of that, that we can uh, fear that side of the ditch so much that we go into the other side, which is the overreaction response, the the accidental knocking over of a toy or spilled milk or bumping into a brother, and then they get a three-hour detention in their room with no lights and no sound and no escape, and they just have to endure it. This too is an error, Paul Tripp says, because it teaches our children to fear us, not to listen out of love and respect, but to fear us. And what that does, it doesn't necessarily teach our children to obey, it teaches them not to get caught. And by not bringing their problems to us, they're less likely to receive the punishment that we lord 
over them. And neither of these are right either reactions or right responses from the parent or from the child. You would want children who listen to their parents, accept their wisdom. You would want parents who judge fairly and righteously, yet also give mercy at the right time, at the right moment, in the right season, so that they realize that there's a balance between justice and mercy, love and righteousness, grace and fairness. Well, I hate to to tell you parents something that you already know, but we can't do this. We fail at this utterly and totally all the time uh, because we're sinful as well. We are in need of correction. We are in need of constant reminder. We are in need of that grace and mercy, judgment and peace. And so where can we go? Where do we turn? Well, we turn to God. Because unlike us, God does judge fairly. And when God gives justice, it's the most just thing to do. And when God gives mercy, it's the most merciful thing to do. It's measured out exactly, precisely for the consequence, for the situation, for the crime. And so we find ourselves clinging to God and asking God's help. And yet at the same time, we listen to God and we see how God acts. And having this in the back of our minds will help us today in a very difficult passage. A passage of judgment, and not just temporary judgment, but judgment of eternal consequences. And so we're going to think about that this morning in three sections of our text. First, we're going to see that we are to trust in God's word. To flee the coming judgment. The escape from judgment is God's word. We'll find that in verses 6 through 8. Secondly, we will realize that God's glory will be revealed in the just and the unjust. We'll find that in 9 and 10. And then finally, we will conclude by seeing that God alone can make you worthy of his calling. In verses 11 and 12. And so let's dig in, shall we, by learning how we can flee this coming judgment, this severe eternal punishment and wrath. God takes very seriously the persecution of his church and of his children. It would be wrong of us to think that he does not see these things, he does not care about these things. God will ultimately protect his people, whether it's realized immediately, and sometimes it is, or when Christ returns. But do not fear, dear Christian, God will dish out, will pour out, will reveal his ultimate plan, and it will be merciful and just. We're told this, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that when Jesus comes again. He will do so with angels of flaming fire. 
to enact this justice that must be done against those who have harmed the church. And in the Bible paints a pretty dramatic picture of Jesus. If you go to the book of Revelation, riding on the white horse, the white rider, the sword of truth coming forth from his mouth. But let's focus on these angels for a moment. These are angels of power, mighty angels, fierce. And they accompany Jesus to carry out the task. Now, angels are mighty and fierce in their own right, but these also happen to be on fire. It's like, how dramatic can we make this situation? How can we get people to see just how important it is? Oh, yeah, let's light them on fire, because that'll get people's attention, won't it? And it should, because fire serves a very important purpose in the biblical narrative, doesn't it? Fire most often reflects God's judgment, his purifying act, his cleansing. You know, we could look all throughout scripture to see examples of this. Isaiah, Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room. He's before God and before the angels. He falls on his face. I can't even be here. And an angel goes to the altar, grabs a coal from it and puts it on his mouth and says, arise, you are clean. He faced God's fire, God's judgment, and was declared, was allowed to stand in his presence. You could also go to Nadab and Abihu, who received God's judgment through fire, literally. Being high priests, they went to offer a sacrifice, but decided they would throw in something that didn't belong there, and God's presence was consuming at that moment through the very fire that they offered to him. And they were killed. Their sin brought forth judgment from God. Sodom and Gomorrah, flaming fire, falling from heaven, an act of judgment. The book of Revelation, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the Psalms themselves speak of us going through the purifying fire of God. We could go on and on this morning to talk about how God's fire is God's Judgment that both purifies and consumes. And so what we need to conclude here is when Jesus comes with flaming angels, he comes with God's purifying, refining judgment. To whom is this judgment going for? That's an important question. If we've built it up, it, we're told they come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord. I'm going to make a very difficult statement this morning that is completely true. God's judgment is never upon innocent people. That's a hard concept for us. We don't like hearing it. We like to minimize our sin and our disobedience, but God's judgment has never fallen upon an innocent person except one, and that being Jesus Christ himself. This act will be carried out on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And I, I think that partly the reason that many Christians don't take Christianity seriously is we forget. We forget just how holy God is. We forget that Moses struck the rock twice and was forbidden from the promised Land, We forget, as that Israelite reached out to stop the altar from falling, 
they were struck, stricken dead. We forget again and again and again and again for people like Achan who disobeyed and was stoned and then burned and then a mountain was laid on top of him that we not. We forget these moments and we forget that God's judgment is real and so when it comes time to obey, we're like, meh, what's the worst that can happen? Eternal damnation. We forget. And that, that makes us take things far too lightly. But this text isn't just talking about those who will receive the judgment. It's also talking about those who will escape that judgment. And who are they? If those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel will be punished, then the escape from punishment is to know God and to obey the gospel. And what does that mean? What does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to submit ourselves to God and in his mercy, recognizing we cannot save ourselves. You know, my mind goes to the upper room. Jesus takes off his outer garment, strips himself of his clothing. He gets onto the floor and does a task so menial that they didn't even require Jews to do it. He washes the feet of the disciples and he says, Look at me and do likewise. Now, Jesus was not making a sacrament of feet washing. He was humbling the disciples by humbling himself. And he said, this is how you treat each other, and this is how you treat those outside the church. That's what it means to obey the gospel, to look at other people and lift them up as you lower yourself down, recognizing if you are in Christ, you have received mercy that you did not earn and you did not deserve. It is to consider others more than yourself, maybe even to the point of death. For that's as far as Jesus was willing to go. Jesus was willing to die. Because of this, obey God. Submit yourself to his word. Share the grace and mercy with others. Give abundantly of yourself. Remember that these writers are writing to a battered church. A church that has endured almost two years of persecution. Heavy, intense, severe persecution. Some have died because of it. Prophets have been run out of town. And they are told, obey God's word. Listen to the gospel. That's what they're being told here. Obey God's word and listen to the gospel. That is how you will endure. That is how you will escape the wrath to come. That is how you will live a life that honors God, remember this, Paul was on his way to kill more Christians when Christ confronted him with the gospel himself. When Jesus Christ revealed himself to Saul, that immediately registered in his mind that everything he thought he understood was wrong. And what happened? What was the response? How did that turn into his life? Well, Saul became Paul, became obedient to the gospel, and his one visit on the road away from being the people that they write about here, that you will face persecution, and instead is the person writing this to the church, this is how you escape it. The gospel, that fork in the road. Persecution, submission to God. We must cling to this gospel if we want any hope 
at fleeing the wrath to come. But please understand me when I say this. God's glory will be revealed in the just and the unjust alike. He will glorify himself and it will be the right thing to do. Let's look at our second section to see this in our text. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will receive punishment for their crimes. They have rejected God. They have rejected the good news of the gospel. They've turned their backs on salvation and instead chosen rebellion. Now there's a few things we need to be careful of here in our text. Lest we come to some wrong conclusions about this judgment. The text is not saying that they will be annihilated. Um, There are some uh, theological views that say that, that hell is annihilation. That's not what's meant here by eternal destruction because this would not be consistent with the eternal part. You can't be annihilated eternally. That doesn't work. Rather, this punishment they will face will continue for all eternity in hell because they have willfully disobeyed the God of creation. You know, the book of Revelation speaks of this place. It calls it the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And you can go to those latter chapters, uh, like 17 to 20 in the book of Revelation, and you can read about this fierce battle between God and Satan. Um, And you can read about Satan being thrown into that lake of fire. And you can read about that time of judgment uh, that will be sure and forever. We're told in the book, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But don't miss one of the things that Paul and his co-writers say here is they will be sent away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And once again, we, we need to nuance that because others think, um, some hold to the theology of annihilation, some think that hell will be the absence of God. And if we're not careful, we could come to the same conclusion here. But no, it's the absence of God's mercy. It's the absence of God's forgiveness. It's full of, it's God's justice, it's his judgment, it's his righteousness being poured out. For they have sinned against God and God alone, and God alone can carry out the judgment. They will face God's righteous anger. They will see him upholding his honor and defending his church, which he has every right to do. Yet again, we find ourselves going, that doesn't paint a very positive picture, does it? Well, let's look at the other side. Let's look at those who aren't receiving this. How are those who trust in God part of the same picture? Why is this written as an encouragement to the church? Well, we're told this will all take place when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints And to be marveled at among all who believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's coming back to bring judgment against those who have persecuted the church. But he's also coming back to be glorified in the saints. The return of Christ for the believer is a day of celebration. 
is a day of joy. It's a day of gladness. It is a day where there'll be no more sorrow. Every tear will be wiped from every eye and there will be no more hurting and heartache and brokenness. For those who have opposed the work of, God, of the gospel will receive their reward. It may not feel like it now. It may seem that they get away with it. And for a time they might. But dear Christians know that judgment is coming. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his church. He is awaiting till his measure of wrath is full. And that his judgment is complete. And it will be carried out. God has promised it in his word. And I have yet to hear of a promise that God has failed to keep. That's why he tells this battered church this news. That's why he proclaims it to us today. Hang on, Christian. Hang on. For this is coming. We're told you have listened to the gospel that we proclaimed. Paul, Silas, and Timothy all preached the gospel to this church. They have proclaimed it in letters. They have proclaimed it by words. They have asked other churches to pray over them and to pray for them. And they tell us now, this, this is how you make it. This is how you last. This is how you escape what we're talking about by clinging to that gospel message. And in some ways, that's so simple. That's all it takes. That, that's all there is. Believe. Trust in God's word. Prepare to receive your reward on judgment day. It may not feel soon, but it is coming but I can hear many of you because I know what I was saying at this point in the text I know where I was yesterday about 11 o'clock Aaron I'm a sinner I try to trust in God I try to believe in his word but I still fail I don't know if I'm gonna make it I don't know if that picture of hope you write is for me how, how can I be assured that I'm not on the path to judgment and that I'm on the path of mercy? You've got to give me more, Pastor. I need more. And these were the very things I was asking myself as I was preparing this sermon this week because this is heavy. This is eternal. This is significant. This is not just here and now. This is forever. That's a lot of time to either get it right or get it wrong. <laughs> well, the good news is we're not left without hope. In fact, we are given an abundance of hope. In our final section, we're told that God and God alone will make us worthy of his calling. And that's about the most beautiful thing that I can tell you this morning. Let's take a moment and look at this and see just how sufficient God's plan is for your lives. And I will admit we, myself, chief of all, frequently need reminders of what God has done and what God has given to us. For many of us, you know, we, we understand what our lives would be like without God, but we, we often struggle with the reality that God will go through with what he's promised. And because of this, Paul and his co-writers pray this beautiful prayer at the end of this section. They pray it over a struggling church, over struggling Christians. 
And so maybe this morning you find yourself as a struggling church, as a struggling Christian, and you need to hear this prayer that was given for you. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in true Puritan fashion, I'm going to give you seven points of application from this prayer that offer you hope today, right now, that God will see you through, that you will flee the coming judgment, and that you are in him and of him. Let's walk through this prayer together. First, we need to see God We pray that God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, don't take that may as in God might do it or might not. This is a prayer. They're lifting it up. May God do this, knowing that God will. So let's reread that with that in mind. God will make you worthy of his calling. Just as it is true that God is the one that brings judgment, God is the one that saves. God holds the standard and God gives the grace needed to meet the standard. This does not negate our part in it. We have a part to play. We are to submit, to receive. We cannot sit idly by and let life happen. But what does this mean? It means it won't fail. God will see you through to his calling. God makes the call, and God makes you capable of receiving the call, and then pushes you to it. This is certain. This is a fact, dear Christian. Cling to this. Cling to this. If that's not enough, too. God will fulfill every resolve for good. God knows that we struggle with sin and temptation. God knows... That sin is like a cancer in our lives and often it has to be carved out and stopped from spreading. And God has promised that in the life of the believer, he will rid the believer of that cancer. He's working in us as we are attentive to his word, his sacraments, and his prayers. He's creating in us a new life, a new body, a new heart. And once again, this does not excuse our part in this picture, but it does guarantee its completion. God will fulfill every resolve for good. I'm sure the Thessalonian church knew that they had a ways to go. And as we all know, this can often lead to despair when it comes to our own lives. But God is not done with us yet. He is not back. You are still alive, which means we're not finished. Three, God will fulfill every work of faith by his power. Have you ever thought to yourself, I just don't know how to do good. I don't know how to do right. I don't know how to be that person that God calls me to be. Well, here's the best news possible. You don't have to come up with that. God is preparing good works For you, so that you may do them, so that he may be glorified, so that you may be sanctified, and that he may transform you. You don't even have to come up with the good works. God is making them and preparing them for you so that you can walk in them. Four, 
Why? So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you. Have you really thought about the fact that you bring glory to Christ? You, how you are today, right now, in your imperfection, in your struggle, in your weakness, you bring glory to Christ by God using you in your current state to fulfill his plan. I know sometimes we can be our own worst critics, but I mean, come on. What higher calling can you ask for than to be someone that brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ? That's why we were created. And I can make the statement of the just and the unjust. It is universally true. All humans that God has created are right now glorifying himself, bringing honor to his name. And that will be completed. Fifthly, and this specifically refers to us Christians, not only... Do we bring glory to Christ? But Christ brings glory to you. If you bear the name Christ, you are a witness to his gospel message and his power. You in your imperfection, you in your weakness, you in your sinful state. In submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings glory to you as you do to him. Because he can save someone even like you even in your state. And we all know our own hearts very well to know how marvelous that truly is, don't we? You are not some low life without purpose. Dear brothers and sisters, you are a child of God. Sixth, according to the grace of our God. You don't deserve it. Let's just get that out in the open. Neither do I grace it's mercy it's undeserved it's unearned it's unpaid for on your behalf because Jesus Christ did and he does earn it and he does deserve it and he is worthy to receive it and he's worthy to give it and if that was not enough seven the number of perfection according to the grace of our God and in the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus Christ took on human flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life of full obedience to the point of death. He stood before the Father and offered his own blood as a sacrifice. You escaped the coming wrath and destruction brought on by your own sin by Jesus alone. And you can't mess it up. You didn't make the offering you didn't stand before the Father. You were the cause. You were what made it necessary. And if Jesus Christ places his hand upon you, you will be saved. For he is Lord. Trust in Jesus. Confess your sin. Submit yourself to the Father. And that is enough. That is enough. It's not easy to talk about judgment. But I hope that you see the path away from this fate. It will come for those who reject God and reject his church. So if you're here this morning or you're listening online and you don't trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope, take this message to heart. This is a message of warning. 
This is a message of this is what will come if you do not turn from your ways, confess your sin for treason against the high king. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a struggling Christian just trying to hang on to know you're in good company. You're just like those in Thessalonica. Titled this sermon, Am I Worthy of the Kingdom of God? I want to close by just asking you to ask yourself that question. And I want you to be careful when you answer it. Because often when we think of our answer to that question, we think of ourselves. We ask, am I able to make myself worthy of the kingdom of God? But I hope you've heard these words this morning and you don't think about it from your perspective. You think about it from God's perspective. And I want you to ask yourself that today, this afternoon around the lunch table or as you go about this week. And I want you to think about what God has done. And I want you to answer that boldly. If you consider yourself a Christian, then you are a child of God. And your answer to that question should be certain. Because he is good. And he makes us to be after him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's so difficult to even begin to unpack the, unpack the level of mercy you have shown. Any of us, any one sin, any one moment of transgression is worthy of hell and damnation for all eternity. For we have disobeyed our creator willfully and by neglect through genealogy all the way back to Adam, the best of us, and so we come with gratitude. Thank you, O oh Lord. Thank you for forgiving a sinner such as I. Thank you for not leaving us where you found us. Thank you for meeting Paul upon that road. And thank you for meeting us as each one of us with our own personal stories where we could find you. Lord, I pray for those who do not yet trust in you. I pray that they would hear these words and know that judgment is coming. It is inescapable, and it will be certain and complete and full, and it will be well-deserved. I pray that you would affect all the hearts, Lord, that hear this message here and online, that they might submit themselves to you and flee this coming judgment, and also that they might join together with the church, that they might worship and fellowship with their brothers and sisters and know that we're all in this together, growing having our lives transformed, stumbling, asking for forgiveness, and walking after you as you've called us to. Lord, we thank you for your faith, your hope, your promise, and we thank you for your judgment. And I pray that you would help us to answer that question, are we worthy, not by our own lives, but by yours. We ask all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.